call the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to order. We thank our witnesses for being here and um, look forward to your testimony. As much of the world concentrates on the ISIS threat and instability in the Middle East, the committee takes this opportunity to consider efforts by the United States and other partners to counter extremism in the sub-Saharan Africa area. Long-term development has been the norm across much of Africa, including here, I'll tell you what, Ben, even with large letters, I can't see anymore. <laughs> Including here in our committee with the recent signing of the Power Africa legislation, which we're all very proud of and appreciate the way the administration has led on that effort also, that we hope will help bring investment to, the, to a key sector for economic growth and opportunity. Whereas in the Middle East, uh, we have been reacting to abhorrent state and terrorist violence and the uprooting of millions of people, in Africa, we've had the opportunity of years of influence through diplomacy and de development and partnerships to improve outcomes. However, violent extremism is not a new phenomenon in Africa. Three sub-regions have exploded with terrorist elements some decades old. Al-Shabaab and its predecessors have long troubled Somalia and its neighbors in East Africa, including attacks on American embassies in 1998. Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb have, have evolved since 9-11 into a vicious regional threat across the Sahel and beyond, and they have fought the Algerian government since 1991. Boko Haram, which, was, which has declared allegiance to ISIS, will stop at nothing to carry out, carry out its grotesque attacks against civilians and communities across Nigeria and the Lake Chad Basin. All three of these conflicts have drawn international intervention and resources because the, because the terrorist elements involved are seen as aspiring to the kind of international terrorism perpetrated by Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And some are beginning to show increased sophistication in attacks. Beyond these three conflict and terrorist-ridden regions are several complex crises that breed on instability brought on by many factors, the most egregious of which appears to be the complete lack of government responsibility for its citizens through corruption and greed, rather than any lack of resources. This includes most recently South Sudan and the Central African Republic, and of course the decades-long atrocities in the Democratic Republic of Congo, all three of which have cost billions of dollars to mitigate through massive peacekeeping peacekeeping operations. While the world seeks ways to address the direct threat of emergent terrorist groups in a reaction mode, we, we have had a chance and still do to improve the prospects for many countries in Africa by leveraging long-term relationships and development. I'm also concerned that there are efforts to gain traction in destabilizing other countries we consider relatively stable now. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses today the lessons that they have drawn from their direct engagement in these regions, and I hope to better understand what the underlying factors are that contribute to the terrorist threat in the region and what U.S. efforts have been made to build a better response across the whole of government and with partners in the international community. With that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, Ben Cardin. Well, Chairman Corker, thank you very much for convening this hearing on terrorism, instability in sub-Sahara. Africa, I, I agree with your assessments. The, the amount of violence in this region escalating is of major concern and uh, requires uh, the attention of this committee, of the United States Senate, and the American people. Uh, 
I also agree with you that there are multiple reasons uh, for the uh, uh, instability and crisis in this region, but that there is a common theme of poor governance. And that's an issue that provides a vacuum, and that vacuum is usually filled with instability and recruitment of extremists. So I, I very much agree with you. This is an area of growing concern uh, in regards to the amount of violence that is taking place, and one that requires us to put a focus on the governance structures in the countries of Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's true, it's from West Africa to the Lake Chad Basin uh, to East Africa. In West Africa, the circumstances in Mali, uh, we find the marginalization of ethnic groups uh, that have become now a home for at least five active terrorist groups, breeding ground for terrorist recruitment. The UN mission in Mali uh, is the most deadliest peacekeeping mission um, that we have anywhere. Uh, that is, a, should be of a sign that things need to change in regards to Mali. We have the parties uh, coming forward to it for a peace agreement. Well, we need to see immediate attention to that and see whether, in fact, that peace agreement can be implemented. In the Lake Chad Basin uh, in Nigeria is of particular concern. Pokoran is uh, linked, which has pledged its allegiance to ISIS. We'll see, in fact, how that alliance, in fact, takes place or not. But we do know it is extremely deadly. The number of uh, uh, deaths have escalated dramatically, 15,000 since 2009, 2.4 million displaced people, 5.6 million in need of food. And these numbers are shocking in their size. But I think the world uh, became uh, engaged in this when 200 uh, schoolgirls were kidnapped, uh, and yet their fate today is still not known. In East Africa, in Somalia, uh, we have to pay careful attention. We know that. And in all of these regions, there's a common denominator of, good, of lack of good governance. This year in Somalia is said to be a critical one for the consolidation of the Somali state. A constitutional referendum and completion of the federal system are supposed to occur. Absent the establishment of a fully functioning, transparent, and inclusive government, it will be difficult, if not impossible, to eliminate the threat posed by al-Shabaab. While the threats have been clearly identified, what is not as evident is whether the United States is consistently applying a comprehensive approach to countering violent extremism in Africa, one which adequately addresses key drivers of radicalization, such as political and economic marginalization, corruption, and poor governance, and whether steps have been taken to build the, the type of capacity in the African countries to counter the violent extreme activities. I hope today's hearing will help us all better understand the package of programs and activities we are bringing to bear to combat terrorism and violent extremism in Africa, and what, if any, efforts the administration is making to fully integrate principles of democracy, anti-corruption, and good governance into our approach. Security assistance alone will not win the battle. Mr. Chairman, let me quote from Deputy Secretary of State Tony Blinken, who recently said in regards to the counter-violence extremism is, and he quote, a fight that over time will be won in the classrooms, in the house of worship, on social media, on community centers, at sites of cultural heritage, on the sports fields, and within the homes of the people in every corner of the planet. 
end quote. Given how significantly underfunded democracy and governance programs in Africa have been over the past several years, I don't see how we could be reaching that threat where it is. But there are two steps we can take right away to do so. First is a point I've been making to the administration for nearly a year. It is critical that we increase investment in democracy and governance, such as our commensurate with our security assistance funding. In FY15, the last year for which figures are available, we allocated approximately $1 billion for security assistance and only $170 million for democracy and governance. I hope that you have, uh, I hope that as you discuss allocations for FY16 with, with the appropriators, you will indicate you will meet the $312 million democracy and governance in Africa called in the omnibus report language, and I hope we have a chance to talk about that. Secondly, the United States must signal to our partners that our support does not come at the expense of respect for democracy and human rights. I fear we have sent the wrong signal to the government of Ethiopia about our priorities in this area by failing to support human rights and democracy activities in that country. To cite just one example, it is critical that we take the Prime Minister up on his offer from last July to work with us on improving democracy in Ethiopia. In addition, we should be ensured that our security assistance includes support for military and civilian institutions that support accountability for counterterrorism partner countries with weak democracy and human rights records. So, Mr. Chairman, I hope that during the course of this hearing, we're going to hear from our administration officials exactly what is our coordinated strategy. Yes, we want to fight extremism. We have to do that. We have to have the military security assistance. But if you don't have in place the type of governance that represent the, the concerns of the population, there will be instability and a void in which extremists will capitalize on. And I look forward to our discussion. Well, thank you very much for those comments. And again, we thank our witnesses. I'm going to introduce all three of you. And then if you'd just speak in the order uh, that you're introduced, I would appreciate it. Our first witness is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Assistant Secretary for African Affairs at the Department of State. Welcome. Our second witness today is Linda Etem. Etem? Etem's better. Um, Assistant Administrator for Africa at USAID. Thank you for being here. Our third witness is Justin Cyberell. No, no, come on. You know, need a little help here. Cyberell. Cyberell. Acting Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the Department of State. We want to thank you all for being here for the for your service to our country, and if you could summarize your comments in about five minutes, that would be great. Without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. So, thank you. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, let me thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I have a, a very brief oral statement, and I provided a more comprehensive written statement for, for the record. Africa is home to the world's youngest and fastest growing population. It presents significant opportunities for transformation and growth as well as many challenges. The overall trends in Sub-Saharan Africa point to accelerated democratization, development and economic opportunity. Although Africa remains the world's least developed continent, Average real per capita income increased steadily over the last decade and a half. However, in spite of these positive trends, instability and conflict persist, persist uh, in parts of Africa. This instability has a direct bearing on U.S. national interests and those of our closest allies. 
terrorists, narcotic traffickers, and a range of transnational criminal organizations exploit state fragility and conflict. Conflict destabilizes states and borders, it stifles economic growth, and it robs young Africans of the opportunity for education and a better life. While attacks in Brussels and Paris and even in San Bernardino offer tragic reminders that terrorism can happen anywhere, Africa has critical vulnerabilities and capacity gaps that must be addressed. Therefore, we are working with our African partners to increase their abilities to prevent and respond to such threats and to address the conditions that perpetrate the cycles of instability and conflict across the continent. Addressing instability in Africa requires a comprehensive and a balanced approach, as you have stated. We cannot focus solely on the security aspects of the solution. Military, intelligence, and law enforcement tools are vital to defend a range of threats, but they cannot replace robust diplomacy and the hard work required to strengthen democratic institutions, to stimulate economic growth, trade and investment, and promote development, education, and broad-based economic opportunity. The State Department, USAID, and the Department of Defense, known as the 3Ds, and several other agencies offer unique expertise and capabilities, and it is essential that each organization has the tools to contribute to our common objectives of building immediate and long-term stability in Africa. As you stated, Senator Corden, stability begins with building strong and stable democratic processes. Addressing individual and collective grievances created by lack of governmental accountability, corruption, denial of basic human rights, and feelings of political inclusion is not just the right thing for governments and civic leaders to do, it is a security imperative. Stability in Africa ultimately requires leaders with the will and the capacity to respond to the needs and aspirations of their people. We continue to stay focused on supporting free, fair, and transparent elections that are inclusive and representative. We've seen major electoral successes during the past several years, but there have been some setbacks as well. However, democratic governance is not only about elections. National and local governments must deliver essential services for their people civil society, and a free press must be empowered. Independent judiciaries must enforce rule of law, and professional security forces must respect human rights. President Obama, okay. President Obama has also highlighted that the most urgent task facing Africa today and for decades ahead is to create opportunity for the next generation. Young people constitute a majority of Africa's population and stand to gain or lose tremendously based on the continent's social, political, and economic trajectory. They also represent the next generation of African leaders. They must be empowered to contribute to their country's future so that they are not enticed by extremist ideologies. President Obama has warned about the vulnerabilities, and I quote, the vulnerabilities of people entirely trapped in impoverished communities where there is no order and no path for advancement, where there are no educational opportunities, where there are no ways to support families and no escapes from justice and the humiliation of corruption that feeds instability and disorder and makes these communities rife 
for extremist recruit recruitment, unquote. We know that groups like Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, and associated groups often ensnare their foot soldiers by simply offering cash or promises of financial reward for themselves and for their families. It's vital that governments, sometimes in partnership with the private sector, use every available resource to offer educational and vocational opportunities that provide alternatives to these lethal traps. We also recognize that strengthening the security and justice institutions of our African partners is vital for long-term stability on the continent. So as a consequence, we're partnering with African countries, with organizations, with people to develop capable professional security services, improve security sector governance, and enhance regional coordination for more effective responses. Once again, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Go ahead. So good morning, Chairman Corker. Good morning, uh, Ranking Member Cardin and all the members of the committee. And I also thank you for this opportunity to discuss uh, USAID's work on this very important topic. Uh, throughout Africa, U.S. national interests and in our efforts to end extreme poverty, to promote resilient democratic societies, and to increase economic opportunities for people are increasingly threatened by the instability and the spread of violent extremism. We believe, and as this committee has already stated, that development programming can be a powerful tool to prevent conflict and instability. Conflict and instability imp impede development. They slow investment. They prevent children from attending schools, as we've seen in northern Nigeria. They place additional burdens on already fragile healthcare systems, as we've seen in the Ebola response case, and they undermine political systems. We also know that our activities are designed to reduce opportunities for extremists to exploit social injustice, economic inequality, the lack of political integration, and we need to, to actually make sure that these activities help to advance uh, uh, development programming uh, through, throughout the, the, the countries. To date, I'll, I'll try to discuss how our programs, which are based on strategic thinking and evidence-based results-oriented approaches, seek to prevent violent extremism in Africa. But I'll also touch on the importance of USAID's governance programs, which seek to reduce social inequalities, corruption, and institutional weaknesses that can often foster instability. When we look at the drivers, experience has taught us that responding to military conflicts that erupt in fragile states by deploying large peacekeeping missions or large-scale and often far too long-term humanitarian responses are very costly. For that reason, whenever USAID designs a program or a country strategy, we use our analytic capabilities and knowledge of the local context to reduce the drivers of fragility. These assessments consider the push factors that drive support for violent extremism, such as social fragmentation, a sense of injustice, perceptions of marginalization, and distrust of government. We also try to address the pull factors that can attract those who are vulnerable to violent extremism. This analysis helps to shape our interventions to promote good governance and rule of law and respect for human rights, as well as sustainable, inclusive development. We don't have one single answer as to what causes violent extremism. A decade of analysis has shown that there's a strong correlation between state fragility, feelings of injustice, marginalization, as being drivers of violent extremism. In 2011, USAID issued a policy which we entitled the Development Response to Violent Extremism and Insurgency. This policy recognized development's unique role in mitigating the drivers of extremism and advancing US national security. 
USAID activities, therefore, are designed to mitigate these drivers by increasing resiliency at all levels. At the individual level, we target marginalized communities, particularly youth, through employment, outreach programs, vocational training skills, and community development activities. At the local level, we focus on social cohesion activities, peace committees, to build stronger, more resilient communities. At the national level, USAID has an important role to play in strengthening government institutions and their ability to deliver basic services, but also to encourage inclusion and better transparency. Youth are a key demographic in our programming, and while there's no one profile of what at-risk youth look like, unemployed youth who have migrated to urban and slum areas who are university graduates or who have no expectations and have lived through or participated in conflict can be at the greatest risk. Therefore, our programming focuses on this important demographic. In Kenya, for example, 75% of the population is under 30 years of age. Through our Generation Kenya program, we offer targeted training to at-risk youth populations, closing the gap between young people who are out of work and employers who are short of employees with skills. Generation Kenya plans to place more than 50,000 young people in stable careers by 2020. Going forward, USAID will expand this programming into violent extremism hotspots, working hand-in-hand -hand with communities, local and national governments, and, private, and the private sector to ensure its success. In Niger, our Peace and Through Development project produces and delivers original radio content, which is aimed at countering extremist narratives through accurate reporting and peace messaging. It reaches over 1.7 million people in 40 of the most at-risk communities. We've also directly, through this program, engaged nearly 100,000 people through civic education, moderate voice promotion, and youth empowerment-themed events. These programs, we believe, increase citizens' engagement with the government and decrease incentives for young people to take part in illegal or extremist activities. In conclusion, instability is often the product of generations of neglect and corruption, and its resolution, therefore, will be the product of generations of concerted focus, legitimate engagement, and met expectations. Because trends in extremism are fluid, we know that we must constantly reassess our priorities, our progress, and our policies to ensure that our work is actually based on the realities of today. Through program assessments, implementations, and evaluations, we're learning what works and what does not work. We're improving best practices and we're helping individuals and communities to address these drivers of instability and violent extremism on their on their own through the work of our missions in the field and through USAID support act supported activities and resource centers. USAID's commitment is evidence in the number of individuals dedicated to this problem set, but we know that we can't do it alone. Sustained engagement with strong partners in the US government through the departments of state and defense, through the work that your committee is doing here and with donor governments, as well as with our partners in the religious communities, uh, local governments, civil society organizations, all of these different groups on the ground who will be key to combating extremism today, and they'll be key also to securing peace and stability for years to come. I thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. As outlined in our statement for the record, a number of terrorist groups remain active in sub-Saharan Africa, including Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Al-Murabatun, and Boko Haram, also known as Islamic State West Africa Province. Regional military forces with United States and international assistance have made progress against all of these terrorist groups. Terrorist safe havens in Somalia, 
northern Mali and the Lake Chad Basin have been degraded significantly. However, in the face of this pressure, these groups have shifted to more asymmetric tactics, including attacks against soft targets. We've seen this dynamic in West Africa recently. Over the recent months, AQIM and Marabatun have carried out a series of attacks against international hotels and tourist sites in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Cote d'Ivoire, killing scores of people, including an American citizen. Similarly, in East Africa, we've seen Shabaab become increasingly aggressive in pursuing attacks against high-profile targets in Somalia and across the border in Kenya. We are also concerned by the risk that ISIL, ISIL's presence, may grow on the continent. As we've seen elsewhere in the world, ISIL seeks to co-opt existing terrorist groups as well as local insurgencies and conflicts to expand its networks and advance its agenda. We are watching these dynamics closely. We are working with partners to contain and drive back ISIL-affiliated groups wherever they may emerge. The United States is committed to building and sustaining partnerships across Africa to counter terrorism and promote stability. Partnerships are at the core of our approach. And this is reflected in our interagency efforts as well through the Partnership for Regional East Africa Counterterrorism, or PREACT, and the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership, TSCTP. Mr. Chairman, the United States is providing significant support for regional military operations. Through our diplomacy, the Department of State continues to encourage regional leadership and cooperation to sustain these efforts. Military efforts alone are insufficient, however. As we deal with the evolving threat environment, the success of our counterterrorism efforts in Africa increasingly depends upon capable and responsible and responsive civilian partners, police, prosecutors, judges, prison officials, and community leaders who can help address terrorist challenges within a sustainable and rule of law framework that respects human rights. In this regard, the Department of State is training and mentoring law enforcement units from more than 15 African countries. We are building their capacity to prevent and respond to terrorist incidents, conduct terrorism-related investigations, and improve land border and aviation security. We are also providing significant assistance for African prosecutors and courts to effectively and expeditiously handle terrorism cases. We are working to enhance the capacity of prisons in Africa to effectively handle terrorist inmates in accordance with international human rights standards. Mr. Chairman, we greatly appreciate the funding provided by the Congress in fiscal year 2016 for the Department's Counterterrorism Partnerships Fund. This funding will enable us to expand our assistance for law enforcement and justice sector, sector efforts in, in key African countries. At the same time, the Department and USAID are increasing our focus on preventing the spread of violent extremism in the first place, to stop the recruitment, radicalization, and mobilization of people, especially young people, to engage in terrorist activities. We are expanding engagement with African partners to better understand the drivers of violent extremism in order to design effective responses. This includes promoting greater trust and partnership between communities and law enforcement. The President's fiscal year 2017 budget request includes increased resources for countering violent extremism programs, including an additional $59 million as part of our overall request under the Counterterrorism Partnerships Fund. These resources would enable us to expand programs in Africa to engage communities and youth susceptible to violent extremist recruitment. Mr. Chairman, there is no single solution to defeat terrorist groups and promote stability in Africa. The challenges are significant. But we believe we have committed partners in Africa who are making progress. We believe we will be most effective in the long run with a comprehensive approach that promotes regional cooperation, the rule of law, and good governance. 
We continue to look for ways to enhance this approach, and we appreciate the strong support of Congress for these efforts. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, let me just uh, start by setting context here. If, if you look at the regions that we're discussing today, and you look at the numbers of deaths, displacements, um, the scale of what's happening in these three regions and other places throughout Africa really uh, over the course of time is, is as large as the scale of, of terrorist activities in the Middle East. Is that correct? I, I would say so, it, particularly if we look at uh, the case of Boko Haram, uh, the number of people who have been killed uh, and affected by Boko Haram are as large as, if not larger than the number of people who've been killed by ISIL in the past year. So there is a, a devastating impact, and it's reflected in the numbers of people uh, killed and impacted by terrorism in Africa. And no disagreement uh, from the other witnesses? No. Let, let me ask you this. We, obviously, there's tremendous focus uh, on the Middle East. Um, we've had a lot of hearings here, and most of us, on the other hand, have, have traveled throughout Africa and the Sahel and seen the tremendous uh, threat, if you will, to stability there. Why do you think the, the world focus is more so on areas like the Middle East and less so on areas uh, like the regions we're talking about right now in Africa? Well, I'll offer my uh, thoughts, Mr. Chairman. I think with uh, the uh, case of ISIL, I mean, they emanate from uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and so there's been a focus in particular on that conflict ongoing. Uh, that has, of course, devastated those societies as well and continues to. Um, that, of course, builds off of the historic origins of Al-Qaeda from the Middle East and that region. So I think from a terrorism perspective, the focus generally has been on that region as the core uh, um, uh, area where these groups have emanated from. Uh, but it does not, uh, uh, as, as uh, Assistant Secretary Thomas Greenfield just noted, when you look at actual violence, the groups in Africa are uh, committing extreme amounts of violence. Boko Haram in particular is a group that has targeted civilians deliberately. And their uh, deaths on an annual basis, we will report these in the annual country reports on terrorism, Boko Haram is consistently in the top ranks of terrorist groups uh, in terms of committing violence and uh, destabilizing an entire region. So the, th the challenges and the threats are as great in, in the African continent, but I would agree with you that the focus, generally speaking, tends to remain on the Middle East and those countries. But, but for what reason? Well, I can, I mean, I think that there, you know, th for ISIL, it is appropriate to focus on the core area where that group has emanated from, and that, and that, is, uh, and that is the main effort in particular against ISIL, uh, against its presence in Iraq and Syria. Um, and in many ways, uh, when we look at the spread of ISIL, uh, preventing that uh, will depend on defeating the group in its core homeland. And so therefore, uh, the focus in that regard on that core area is, is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Any other comments? I would just say that uh, much of the terrorism that we saw in the past on the continent of Africa tended to be focused on Africa, so there was not the, the comparable threat to the homeland uh, from terrorists uh, in Africa as we see 
uh, in the Middle East, but I think we've all come to the conclusion that terrorism anywhere affects us everywhere, and we have to address it not just in the Middle East, but in Africa as well. So the, the, the core central beginnings, if you will, of, of this threat emanated from the Middle East, and so, you know, hitting areas where especially they're establishing a caliphate has been important. And then secondly, uh, the, the groups in Africa have not been seen as a threat to, to Western uh, entities. Would that be a fair assessment of, of the focus? I would say initially, but I think we're seeing more and more that this does have an impact on us. When we look at the uh, attacks in Mali and Burkina Faso, Americans were, uh, were victims. Mm -hmm. And yes, I, would just, I would just add that um, these groups evolved out of the uh, particular context uh, in Africa, but have been co-opted or joined up with transnational terrorist groups. So Al-Shabaab, which began out of the Islamic courts uh, group in Somalia, later affiliated with Al-Qaeda, and of course did uh, be, was part of al-Qaeda's global agenda, and that's been a significant concern of the U.S. Uh, security community because of the foreign fighter element that had uh, traveled to Somalia, including American citizens. So that's been a, a focus, and the concern is that al-Shabaab, representing an al-Qaeda affiliate, does uh, also advance the al attempt to advance the al-Qaeda agenda. Similarly with Boko Haram, recently there's been an affiliation with the Islamic State. So that gives us great concern to look at the group to determine whether or not they will, uh, because of that affiliation, begin to change their focus toward more targeting of, of international interests, Western interests, or even externally. Okay. I'm going to save the rest of my time for interjections. Ranking Member Cardin. Well, thank you, and I thank all of our panelists for their incredible work and a very challenge, challenging uh, uh, assignment. And uh, as I said in my opening statement, as the Chairman said in the opening statement, there's no simple solution to the uh, violence that's taking place, the terrorism that's taking place, and clearly we need a, a security response, including a direct uh, support against uh, terrorism. So I, I strongly support that. But if you each pointed out, the recruitment of terrorists is because there's a void. And uh, there are uh, individuals who feel that they have no other choice and uh, they're prime for recruitment. So. My concern is, are we giving countries a free pass who are our partners in our counterterrorism campaigns uh, on human rights and poor governance? Uh, I say that, and I give you many examples. Uh, in Ethiopia, they just had a parliamentary election. Not a single opposition leader, the person, was, was elected. Uh, we've seen um, the security forces there uh, who have killed hundreds of protesters. In Chad, we have dozens of military officers who have been arrested because they wouldn't vote for the president. In Somalia, we have a report in yesterday's Washington Post where that they're using children for spies. Uh, we've had extrajudicial killings um, by the military in Nigeria and Kenya. And yet I don't see a response by the America U.S. in regards to these activities. Am I wrong? Are we giving them a free pass? Should we be giving them a free pass? Uh, thank you for that question, uh, Senator. In every single one of uh, the cases you mentioned, uh, we condemn human rights abuses. We regularly 
condemn those abuses by security forces and by governments. Uh, and we make clear to these governments that this is a core value uh, for the United States. At the same time, we are committed to uh, firmly uh, working with our partners to address efforts to defeat terrorism. Uh, we can't draw a line and say, we're not going to work with you on terrorism uh, because of human rights uh, violations, but we reinforce with these governments on uh, a regular basis that they must respect human rights and civil liberties and How do you law. do that? How do you reinforce that they must? Uh, we start with a, a diplomatic uh, discussion. So in the case of Ethiopia, we had intense discussions with uh, that government over the past year. And you may know that as a result of those discussions, we are having a human rights dialogue uh, being led by our Assistant Secretary uh, for Human Rights, uh, Tom Melanowski, with the Ethiopians. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, we don't always get our messages through to them, but they are hearing that these are concerns. And in many cases, they are upset that we are expressing concerns about human rights. Could you share with me in this committee uh, the specific methods you've used to transmit your concerns on human rights violations and the lack of democratic progress? I, I'd be interested. I, mean, I, I see the uh, strong voice of the United States uh, on um, counterterrorism issues, which I expect to see and want to continue to see. I have not seen the same um, uh, degree of, 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 of effort and energy in regards to concerns on the poor governance and violations of human rights. Uh, well, first of all, we start with our embassies, uh, with our ambassadors, engaging with governments and embassies. That's quiet, usually. It's not sometimes it's quiet, and sometimes our ambassadors don't get meetings because they're not quiet. Uh, they're very, very public in uh, their expression of concerns. Uh, it also occurs uh, through meetings that I have on a regular basis uh, with heads of states. It's at the top of the agenda. They push back. They say we don't respect them as partners because we're raising human rights concerns. We don't understand the situation in their countries. Uh, and my response has always been, please understand this is a core value for us. We also uh, work with their militaries in terms of providing human rights training. Uh, we, we fund those directly. Uh, we do Leahy vetting on a number of countries, in fact, all countries that we are involved in doing any military uh, training with. And there's been some countries where we've had to make the hard decision not to work with their military and their security services because they have From committed FY human rights. From 13 to 15, the security assistance budgets for Africa have gone up from a half a billion to a billion. The democracy and governance has fallen during that period of time. I would think that democracy and governance uh, is a clear indication of our commitment on uh, good governance and human rights. There is certainly a shortage of funds. There is no question about that. I would like to see a larger pie for, the, for, 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 the, for our global efforts in all these areas. As I understand it, a large amount of the decisions as to how those funds are allocated are based upon who is the most effective in advocating for need. Have we been ineffective in, in advocating for democracy and governance? 
I would like to say no because it is the top of been, my agenda. Why has there been decline in those funds? Well, I have to say I'm not an appropriator. If I were an appropriator, I'd be giving the money to sort the of soft, Some of this is soft uh, allocations yeah. by Congress. Yeah. A lot of this is a complicitous operation between the people at the State Department and appropriators. Uh, from the Africa Bureau's uh, standpoint, uh, Senator, you're speaking to the choir. Uh, I don't have uh, enough resources on democracy and governance, and I think USAID will agree with me on that. We could use more resources in that area. We know that putting money toward uh, democracy and governance, putting money toward good elections, putting money toward building the capacity of civil society contributes to making countries more stable and respect uh, for human rights. Uh, and we make strong cases uh, from our standpoint to support uh, democracy funding so that we have that funding to implement I those programs. I would just, just urge you to do this in a way that is visible to those of us who support your efforts, because quite frankly, we don't see that. We are we're sending our own messages as loudly as we can, including at this hearing, that we want to see greater funds for democracy and governance. But if we don't get the feedback from what is happening in, in the missions and in the department, it makes our job much more difficult. It looks like that uh, countries are getting a free pass as long as they are on our coalition team. Uh, what they do within their own country is of little importance to our foreign policy mission, which is you're telling me it's just the opposite. So showing that, not just by a quiet diplomatic contact, but by how we are making that point would certainly, I think, help us in accomplishing our mutual desire for good governance. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Can anybody tell me what happened to Joseph Coney? He's still out there. Uh, there has been a very strong and proactive effort against uh, the LRA. We've been working with the AU and with the Ugandans and other partners, and uh, we were able to get his number two, who is now uh, currently in The Hague being, being tried. Uh, but Coney has been elusive. Uh, but our efforts continue uh, very robustly uh, to, to get him, and the job is not over until, until that is done. At one time, we committed 100 special troops and forces to CAR, I believe, to go after Coney. Are they still deployed? Uh, I think they are. I can't give you the exact numbers, but I did meet with uh, the team when I was in Uganda the last time, and they, they are still working there. Although not recognized as an institutional terrorist, there's probably no worse terrorist than Joseph Coney in terms of children and women. Uh, I'm glad we're still con committed to trying to bring him to justice as hard as that appears to be. Yes, sir. Talking about the African Union for just a second, do they have, does the African Union address the issue of terrorism on the continent? Do they have a game plan to deal with terrorism? Uh, we're working very closely with the African Union on terrorism on, on the continent. It's high on their agenda. Uh, in the case of Nigeria, uh, they have been very much a part of the creation of the multinational joint task force in Chad, and we provided them some funding and some assistance uh, in their efforts there. Uh, it is uh, the mission in, in Somalia, Amasam, is an AU mission, and it's the largest AU mission uh, on, uh, on the continent of Africa with uh, troop contributing countries uh, from the region. So it is high on their agenda. 
we are partnering with them along with our European colleagues to make sure that they have the capacity uh, and the funding to address what has been a very challenging uh, and difficult threat for them as well as us on the continent. I know we use human rights issues and labor issues in the, in the approval and the participation of AGOA with the United States and African countries. In fact, I was in the AU three years ago when we chastised Swaziland for their labor, lack of humanity to the labor, their laborers and used that as a predicate for them staying in, in the African agreement for them to stop it. Are we leveraging our trade power and our economics as much as we should in Africa? particularly as it goes, is going after terrorism? Uh, we are. Uh, Swaziland is still uh, uh, not a part of AGOA. We regularly send uh, letters of warnings uh, to countries uh, if they are not uh, on the right side of human rights and, and caring for their people. Uh, and AGOA is very important to them, and it's huge leverage. Uh, and in many cases, it has worked to get governments to turn policies around. And if they have not, we have uh, kicked them out of AGOA. I know we do on labor issues and human rights issues. Do we do it on them fighting terrorism as well? Uh, we do, uh, but we do understand that they have a challenge. They have a capacity challenge, uh, but there are also all the other challenges that I mentioned and, and Senator Corden uh, mentioned in, in his statement. Uh, lack of governance, uh, corruption that have, have limited the capacity of governments to fight terrorism. But I think they all have come to understand that if they don't fight terrorism, they're not going to be around to do anything else. So uh, they, they have come to that very uh, uh, strong realization that they have to partner uh, with uh, their neighbors as well as with the international community to ensure that terrorists don't take over their countries. China invests a lot of money for its own benefit in Africa, it extracts a lot of rare earth minerals and raw materials and things of that nature and builds some roads and highways. Do, do we ever engage with the Chinese on, on the issue of terrorism on the continent of Africa to try and get them to in some way help us or help the continent to fight it? Uh, we do. I was in China uh, about uh, four weeks ago for our annual uh, consultation with the Chinese, and that was on our agenda. USAID was there recently as well on consultations to look at how we can better coordinate with the Chinese on what they are doing in Africa, both economically as well as politically. My experience is that terrorism flourishes when there's a presence of no education, poverty and, and disease and, and, and a lack of hope. And Africa probably is the poster child for those qualifications. And the more we can do, like the, like the uh, Electrify Africa bill and the water bill that we've done here and the food security bill, mm -hmm. the more we can uplift the African people, the better fight we can have against terrorism. Would that be a fair assessment? I'll turn to my colleague at USAID, but I absolutely agree with you. I'll, I'll agree, but I'll also you know, say that we have data that shows that this is actually the case. Uh, we see that we're... Uh, 10 years of research over all of these countries that USAID has worked in uh, across the world has shown very clear evidence that when 
we see governments actually able to deliver services such as energy, access to electricity, healthcare, education services, there is a corresponding uh, decrease in the amount of feelings of marginalization, feelings of inclusion, um, and we've also seen that those countries are usually not the same ones that are correlated with conflict and instability, and that it's been very clear that there's also a clear correlation between where there's the absence of the delivery of services and where people do feel marginalized and that they don't have access to opportunities, that those countries are at risk of conflict, and it's, it's, it's very glaring. Now the links between violent extremism, that's the, next, that's the next step already when you're engaged in conflict, then sort of your, your sympathy to sort of going that next level um, is, is, is not as far of a stretch. And so we, we know that these are things that actually matter. We know that development is actually a very important tool in this space. Well, just based on my uh, observation, it appears that where we've made Millennium, Millennium Challenge compacts and where we've helped build the infrastructure of these countries, there's been less of a presence of terrorism than there is in those countries where we didn't. And that, that, I think that's a good thing for us to continue to invest money. And I, I'm a big supporter of the Millennium Challenge grants and a big supporter for our engagement on that. And thank you very much for your service to all of you. Thank you. I have about a minute and a half reserved. I'm just going to ask a quick question. I, I, all of us, I think, are really proud of the work we've done together on Electrify Africa on food aid reform, on clean water, um, and we, we have other efforts that, that are underway. Really proud of that work. And I appreciate you mentioning the, the benefit that is to, to people, uh, mass numbers of people, millions of people. On the other hand, to bring up a topic that I think Senator Cardin alluded to, and you just uh, did a minute ago, Ms. Thomas Greenfield, when we work with governments that we know are abusing their own citizens, uh, are, they are corrupt. Uh, they are uh, absolutely subjecting their citizens to, to terrible atrocities themselves, those governments. When we work with them to counter terrorism, um, how does that work against U.S. interest relative to, um, uh, relative to causing many of the extremists, extremists there to really harbor ill will towards the U.S. itself? by seeing us associated with governments that they believe are corrupt and uh, not treating its, their citizens appropriately? I think we have to work with governments to fight terrorism, but we also have to continue to work with these governments to address uh, human rights deficiencies in their countries. And I think that the people of those countries want us to continue to engage. They want our voices to be heard. Uh, they know that when we're engaging with these governments that we're also raising concerns about human rights and we have gotten uh, some uh, people released uh, from jail uh, and we've gotten some governments to uh, moderate uh, their uh, actions against their citizens. It's not a perfect solution, but I truly believe that we our engagements with them help on the issues of human rights. Uh, our engagement, I, I'll give the example of Burundi, uh, where we believe that uh, the military in Burundi has been less uh, uh, active uh, and violent against citizens because of our engagement with them, because of the human rights training that they got from, uh, from our people, uh, working closely uh, with them. The government uh, uh, has been a problem uh, but uh, we, we've seen that that military has been less of a problem than most people expected. Okay, we're going to briefly, yes, sir. 
just uh, just to add, uh, in addition to what um, was noted earlier, that all of our civilian delivered assistance uh, is subject to uh, uh, requirements for vetting under the the Leahy law. Uh, we work with governments to to strengthen their rule of law frameworks under which they would uh, uh, carry out an effective counterterrorism policy. So. We reject the notion that there's a conflict, inherent conflict, in effective counterterrorism practice and protection of human rights and civil rights of the people. Um, we have worked to embody that concept in what is known as the Rabat Memorandum, which is a document that the United States government helped to develop through the Global Counterterrorism Forum. And this forms the basis of assistance that we deliver increasingly across the, con the continent in cooperation with the Department of Justice and prosecutors that we fund from the State Department to work with governments to establish strong CT legislation, uh, but to that also protects the human rights of the people. So this is a, this is a major challenge uh, in Africa, and I would say that on the one hand, you have partners who are willing and, and, uh, and capable, but need a lot more uh, assistance to, to become fully capable to fight uh, terrorism challenges. Uh, but they have weak governance and weak governance structures, and this is where we have to strengthen those structures of government so that as they conduct military-led uh, and security-led operations uh, to, um, to detain uh, terrorists and to prevent terrorist attacks, they do so in a framework that enables for uh, those people to be prosecuted and detained effectively in accordance with international human rights standards. It's a long-term effort, but we're very much uh, at, engaged in that work currently. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. I'm just going to follow up on Senator Corker and Senator Cardin's point, which is that while Nigeria's people most need help with daunting governance and corruption issues, um, the United States is planning to sell the government attack aircraft known as the A-29 Super Tucano to Nigeria. And it would be to fight Boko Haram a group everyone opposes, but the Nigerian military has a long-standing history of human rights abuses, including under the current administration. Just last month, Amnesty International accused the Nigerian army of killing hundreds of members of the Shia minority sect in December. Um, and unfortunately, that's happening in other countries in East Africa as well. So what is your perspective on that? given the fact that the people of Nigeria increasingly are seeing U.S. aid move uh, from humanitarian or anti-corruption efforts over to more military aid for those who they believe internally are the ones who are greater um, risk to the security of their families. Uh, our aid is not moving away from corruption. Uh, the new president of Nigeria has made clear that corruption is one of his highest priorities. He named three priorities when he came into power. That was dealing with Boko Haram, dealing with uh, corruption, and dealing with the economy. And we are working very, very closely with uh, this government. In fact, the secretary is in uh, London with, uh, at a meeting hosted by the UK on corruption, and uh, President Buhari is there. Uh, on the issue of uh, assisting the Nigerians in fighting uh, Boko Haram, they have huge capacity issues. Uh, as you may know, last year we turned them down on a request for COBRAs because we were concerned about their ability to use those and not have them have an impact on their communities. Well, let me ask the question mm -hmm. another way. Um, 
if there is no success in convincing the people of Nigeria that their government is not corrupt, yeah. that their government is not fair, will any of this military aid ultimately create the conditions for a successful effort to defeat Boko Haram from yeah. the inside of the country? Will we ever be successful? We have to be, and it has to be. I know we have to be, but. It has to be multifaceted. It has, we have to do the security, but we absolutely have to do the capacity building, uh, the development assistance, uh, the good governance with this government. We have to do both. We can't do one or the other uh, or we will fail. And it will be long term. But I have to say the Nigerian people want us there to assist them on the security side as well because they know that their government doesn't have the capacity alone. They want us there on both of those areas. Well, let me ask you this. Internally, how do you think it will affect the views of the people inside of Nigeria as we increase military aid to the very people who they fear are using it to harm them, harm the Shia inside the country, for example, the government forces themselves. How do you think that uh, will affect how they perceive how the United States is playing inside of Nigeria uh, and, uh, uh, and what could be the consequences of that if that persists? The polls show that we are extremely popular in Nigeria and that the Nigerian people are victims of Boko Haram. And they know that there has to be some kind of security and military solution to addressing Boko Haram. And they want us there to help their military. And I think they think that if we're there to help, their military will be less abusive uh, to their people. And that is a point that we've made to the, the Nigerians. We are training two battalions of, of Nigerian soldiers right now. They have human rights training as part of that training. And all of them have been Leahy vetted. Uh, to ensure. So we're working with uh, the government to, to moderate uh, and stop uh, human rights abuses by the military. But on, on the security side, I think the Nigerian people who are victims of Boko Haram also want to see us help their military address the security threat that they're facing. Okay, well, I just think we're on a, we're on a thin edge here. We just have to be very careful, especially if the government does not control Adequately, adequately its own military internally, the harm that it does to the overall morale inside the country uh, makes it much more difficult to ultimately combat Boko Haram. So I just think it's important for us to keep an eye on that. Uh, and in Congo, there is significant political tension because President Kabila is trying to prolong his stay in power beyond the constitutional two-term limit. His security agents are harassing opposition politicians in a very serious way. Mass protest of Kabila's apparent attempts to remain in office appears imminent. So what is ultimately the, the likelihood that such protests could spark further instability in DRC, particularly if the security forces continue to crack down in response uh, to these democratic instincts that people have, as has been the case in the past? Uh, I sent a letter to Secretary Kerry in February suggesting that the U.S. should communicate to President Kabila to publicly state his intention to respect the Constitution and step aside at the end of his second term in December, and that if he failed to do that and made appropriate preparations for elections, then we should implement uh, sanctions if he does not do that. In response to my letter, 
You seem to suggest that Kabila's actions in the next few months would determine whether or not state would opt to enact sanctions, and you testified before this committee to much the same around that uh, time. It seems to me that the political environment is deteriorating in Congo, and Kabila has not demonstrated an interest in preserving his democratic uh, legacy. Has the time arrived for sanctions to be imposed on the government of Congo? Uh, thank you for that question. And yes, we are looking uh, very, very actively uh, at sanctions uh, as they relate to those who are involved in violence, and we have conveyed that uh, to, uh, to Kabila and his people. The secretary met with him uh, a few weeks ago in New York, and our special envoy has been proactively engaged in the region uh, over the past few months. We're still uh, hopeful that we can get uh, the uh, government of Congo and President Kabila to do the right thing. Uh, their constitution is very clear uh, that his term ends uh, in December and they must have an election. Uh, and we have conveyed that uh, to him. Uh, we are also working very closely with our other partners, with the EU, uh, with the French and others to make sure that we're all on the same sheet of music on, on that issue. Yeah, the election is scheduled for the end of this year. It's only May, there's plenty of time to set up an election. Right now they're talking about the end of 2017 as the earliest, that would be a clear violation of the Constitution. Absolutely. I hope that we make it very clear to him that we will not accept that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to all of you for being here today and for your ongoing work. Um, can you talk about the importance of women's empowerment in contributing to development in Africa and what we're doing, um, what you would identify as the best examples of successful programs? So I love that question. Um, I think uh, that we increasingly, especially in this uh, talking about conflict and instability need to talk about the role of women in peace and security. Um, in fact, that is an actual U.S. government uh, policy, which is uh, entitled U.S. Uh, women Peace and Security Strategy, which talks about the fact that women are critical agents of not only uh, as victims, but also as agents of change when we're talking about uh, uh, instability and conflict, but also violent extremism. Uh, our programming uh, runs the gamut depending on what the situation or scenario is and areas where they, be, they are vulnerable communities or where we see that they don't have a lot of access to legal uh, recourse, uh, economic opportunities, and, and they often are coerced or used as uh, instruments of terror or violence or suffer from gender-based violence, uh, we seek to figure out ways of empowering uh, local women communities through and allowing them training, uh, work through economic empowerment, access to education, which is another sort of critical element that we're seeing. When women have access to education and when girls have access to education, we've seen child marriage rates have fallen and their susceptibility to, feeling, uh, to feelings of acceptance uh, with violent extremist groups also decreases. So again, we think that it's very important to target women uh, and girls uh, in, in these environments because we've also seen that uh, uh, not only are they able to make a critical difference in their own lives, but they're also critical agents of change in, in the rest of their communities. And I, I don't know whether you or, is it Mr. Sibarel, um, want to address this, but 
can you also talk about how the efforts to recruit um, terror, people to terrorism, to ISIL, to Boko Haram, how the difference that we're seeing between the ability to recruit men and women, I know there's been an increasing effort to use women as um, suicide bombers, but can you talk a little bit about what we see about the, who's easier to recruit? Well, I think for most of the groups, the emphasis continues to be on recruiting young men. Um, but um, uh, in the case of Boko Haram, of course, notoriously, they have used uh, girls in suicide bombing operations, which is absolutely despicable. Some of those um, are co obviously coerced into, right. uh, into that activity. Um, I would just build on, on, on something my colleague just noted about the role of women in particular in um, identifying the uh, the seeds of radicalization. Uh, it's, women play a critical role in most communities in being close to the people and having an ability to understand whether or not there are influences coming into the community that could lead to, to a process of radicalization and recruitment into terrorist groups. So this is one of the areas that we would like to develop in our CVE programming. We have a program that has been underway in Nigeria through U.S. Uh, Institute of Peace in which the, they are developing a network of influential women, women who already have a role in the society, to bring them together into a network and to train those women on observing and understanding whether there may be signs of radicalization. And these are the kinds of programs I think that will be very important as we get down to the community level and address the drivers uh, to radicalization to violence. One of, one of the things that we've heard about the success of um, ISIL has been their ability to recruit people to a caliphate. The idea of the caliphate is very important. Are we seeing that same kind of interest in Africa in terms of the messaging to try and recruit? The numbers coming out of Africa that we are aware of in terms of foreign terrorist fighters, those that have actually been inspired to travel and to, or to, to attempt to travel to Syria and Iraq are much lower than for other parts of the world, whether it be North Africa, the Maghreb countries, mm -hmm. even European states, uh, the Caucasus, and even down into Southeast Asia, the numbers are, are higher. Um, but that said, there is evidence of some African uh, um, recru recruitment among Africans into ISIL, and ISIL's propaganda is very shrewd in identifying and using recruits who will come from particular regions and then appealing uh, to those individuals to join the caliphate or come to uh, Iraq and Syria. Of course, ISIL has been attempting to infiltrate into other areas of the continent, in particular in Somalia, and there is evidence of a struggle and, a, and a basically a conflict internally between al-Shabaab and elements uh, that had sought to adhere or to affiliate with, with ISIL. They haven't seemed to have the success there, uh, but it does identify that this is an ongoing concern we have to watch very closely. And is the the cost of getting to um, Syria, to Iraq, part of the challenge with recruitment, or is it other? Is it the messaging that's the issue? I think there are probably a lot of factors. That would be one. Uh, the you know one of the the things that has has made this conflict in Iraq and Syria such a threat to all of us is the relative accessibility uh, of the conflict to people in Europe or in North Africa. To fly to Turkey, as an example, you can get into uh, Syria quite easily, and that's been the historical route. I think it's harder for people in Sub-Saharan Africa to make those connections and to get up. It costs more, mm -hmm. uh, so it is more difficult logistically uh, to do that.
Um, of the estimated 60 million refugees in the world today, I understand that about 15 million are in sub-Saharan Africa, and um, I assume, but maybe I shouldn't, that terrorism and instability are driving those migration flows. Can you also, can you talk about that and also talk about the extent to which climate change is playing a role in the migrations that we're seeing in sub-Saharan Africa? Sure, I think we see that, you know, the Horn of Africa and the Sahel, uh, not surprisingly, are huge areas of where we're seeing uh, the largest numbers uh, of refugee movements right now. Uh, and I'll just say internally displaced persons as well, because even though people sure. aren't necessarily leaving their borders, they're definitely uh, moving out. Uh, when we see uh, the uptick in, in instability in Somalia, for instance, we're even seeing people willing to get on boats to go across to Yemen, which we know hasn't been secure at all. A lot of that is because uh, people know that they're not secure or safe. And when we do our surveys, we've seen uh, time after time that when people don't feel secure and safe, they will move across borders. They also move across borders when not only they don't feel secure and safe, but they don't feel that there is any opportunity for them to exist on their own uh, in the country of origin. So uh, we've seen situations where even in, when, when the insecurity is paramount, such as in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we see large refugee movements, um, what often causes people to move across borders and move further is when markets start closing down or there's not an ability to make a living. So you've got uh, dynamic populations in these countries that in a sad way are used to coping and dealing with instability in very creative ways, but the, the concurrent pressures of instability and the lack of opportunity are, are what are pushing them uh, to move further afield. So that climate change is a big contributor. And, and climate change, sorry, is, is a big contributor in both. We've, we've seen the El Nino effect right now. Drought uh, in uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia is, is definitely a big factor. In 2011, we know that the famine um, was uh, partially caused by drought, mostly caused by al-Shabaab cutting off access to food, uh, was a big reason that people had to cross borders and, and, and we saw the largest migration of, of Somalis. Uh, it's put pressure on neighboring countries such as Kenya uh, and South Sudan, even Sudan and Ethiopia, and we're seeing that those pressures are increasing local tensions. In the Sahel, we see very much the same uh, story, recurrent drought uh, and, and problems of the ability to have uh, accessible land uh, has, has caused people to move to urban centers. And again, with the lack of opportunity in some of these urban and peri-urban centers, we're seeing increased radicalization as well. Thank you, thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you very much. Um, let me just begin. Uh, this is a question of Ms. Greenfield, uh, Secretary Greenfield. Would you describe Boko Haram as an anti-Christian terror group whose main motivation is to rid Nigeria of Christianity? And I say that based on a video released by their leader in 2014. He said, quote, this is a war against Christians and democracy and their constitution. Allah says we should finish them when we get them, end quote. I would say they're more than that. I think that is part of their ideology, but they've killed more Muslims in the North than they have killed Christians. Uh, they are a terrorist organization and they have no, no boundaries. Would you support designating Nigeria as a country of particular concern for religious freedom? I would not designate uh, Nigeria as a country because we have huge, huge uh, and very active uh, Christian uh, populations in Nigeria. 
throughout the southern parts of Nigeria into the Middle Belt and even in northern Nigeria. And we have a huge Muslim population there as, as well. So uh, both communities until Boko Haram were able to live together and work together harmoniously. And uh, I think that that can uh, continue once Boko Haram is brought, uh, brought into um, uh, justice. Now from USAID, um, what programs exist to assist the victims of Boko Haram, in particular uh, the psychological programs for women and girls who've been victims of sexual violence? I think you, you, you put the nail on the head. We, we have a comprehensive program right now that, w that is in design to really target uh, the northeast uh, of Nigeria and looking at uh, the victims of Boko Haram. We're working with communities right now because as we've seen, um, when uh, people who are leaving Boko Haram or who have been the victims of Boko Haram return to their communities, sometimes they suffer from a second wave of victimization. Um, and so we're working to educate communities on in what In terms it, of like stigma? A stigma, and it's, it's, it's been very, it's been heartbreaking actually. And so we're working to educate communities as to what it actually means, what people suffer, what they go through, and the fact that they can still be productive members of communities and societies. We also offer psychosocial support and care. Um, a number of the Chibok girls uh, that, we, that we did uh, manage to, 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 to return home are receiving that type of care right now. Um, we're also making sure that we're working with local uh, clinics and, and, and medical uh, providers uh, to train them in the right uh, techniques. Uh, and then we're also working with uh, community uh, influence makers, religious leaders, uh, so that there is uh, a, a message that can be amplified through various uh, channels uh, that there is, uh, there is recovery uh, that's possible. Um, on uh, where possible, we're restarting basic social services, uh, such as uh, education. Uh, we're putting more money into emergency education in the north, and we're hoping uh, that where we can, uh, we can increase access. Uh, we're also providing assistance to those who are internally displaced uh, through basic humanitarian assistance, the provision of food and health care. With all this instability in sub-Saharan Africa, how has it affected your ability to implement programs, for example, for example, have there been any programs that have been suspended due to security concerns? I, I mean, in, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, when we work in unstable environments, we have uh, programs that have to exercise flexibility. And so we have uh, multiple times suspended and restarted programs, and I think our model of working in these climates uh, has to be based on this idea of really developing long-standing, long-term, long-visioning networks with these communities so that when insecurity prevents us from moving into an area for a period of time, we have through our networks and, and through understandings of, of local people on the ground and our staff who often are from the regions and speak the local languages, they understand when we can come back and they also understand how we can still have access and figure out creative ways of providing assistance to those uh, intended beneficiaries. And so again, I, I would really emphasize the, the flexibility of the programs, understanding that it's not sometimes always a continuous uh, uh, flow of programming without stops and starts, especially in, in areas where there's a lot of- uh, that, that has to be highly disruptive. To the, for example, if you're assisting a victim of uh, sexual violence, and in the middle of that program that we're offering, they um, 
the security concerns require us to eliminate people from that setting, and then it's suspended and then restarted. These, uh, is this a commonplace problem, the stops and starts, because of the security environment? Uh, so, so it's not that the program will stop entirely. So what, usually what we try to do is we have a combination of working through local implementing partners. And so a lot of times what happens is we've managed to train the trainers so that they still receive some types of support, even as maybe international NGOs or some of our own staff will have to pull back. And so we try to layer on different types of interventions to ensure that we have creative ways of making sure that we are able to reach the beneficiaries. But it is disruptive. And when uh, in extreme cases where we have to completely not be in a particular area for, for some time, uh, of course, these are hugely disruptive. Um, what we've found, though, is that over time, when it's been for sustained periods of time such as that, in most of the cases that we work in in sub-Saharan Africa, the population is also moving as well. And then on the counter-terror front, there's been rumors that uh, the leader of, uh, of, of uh, Boko Haram, uh, Sheku, is uh, perhaps in fighting in Syria with ISIL. Uh, could you shed any light on that, Mr. Simmerholden? I've seen some open source reports about that. I have not seen that. I mean, he periodically appears in uh, videos uh, that we are, uh, that are distributed and that we're aware of. And one of the things that we've uh, uh, noted is after the, and watched for, is after the affiliation of Boko Haram with, uh, with the Islamic State, whether there was any uh, uh, difference in the quality of their uh, media output, which is usually an indicator of an actual strong link. We've seen a little bit of that, but I have not heard, or I don't know that there's any uh, um, uh, reporting that I've seen that he is actually in Syria. Are there any countries that you're particularly concerned about in terms of recruiting IS fighters, uh, and, and how significantly do you assess the threat of more and more fighters flowing out of, uh, out of East Africa to be? Yes, we're quite concerned about uh, ISIL or Daesh, Islamic State's attempts to infiltrate and affiliate with existing uh, uh, insurgencies or terrorist organizations. We know that they have been attempting to uh, move into Somalia. Uh, Shabab itself has recognized this as a threat and there's been sort of fierce uh, struggle internally to hold off uh, ISIL. But that then raises the possibility that they will look at other you know, Somali communities in the region uh, to include Kenya elsewhere. Uh, so this is something that we are very concerned with and uh, we know that ISIL will have, uh, uh, will want to continue to build um, its, uh, its uh, network of affiliates. So we have to remain attuned to that. Of course, Libya is a major uh, ISIL affiliate and there is always the threat that the connections might be made from, from Libya throughout the region and we're watching that very closely as well. As for uh, individuals traveling to the conflict, uh, as I noted a, a minute ago, that had, there has been some incidents of that, but the numbers from sub-Saharan Africa, generally speaking, are low compared to numbers of foreign fighters from Europe, from North Africa, from the Caucasus, from Southeast Asia, uh, in comparative terms. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses for being here today. The, Chairman Corker, you opened with a provocative question, which is, um, given some of the statistics and the deaths, why is there less focus generally in the media, in the public sphere about some of these challenges in Africa than elsewhere? Um, the SFRC staff asked the Africa Center for Strategic Studies at the 
National Defense University to prepare some material for the hearing, and there's a really good one-pager on the number of fatalities that have been experienced in Africa, and I just would like to introduce it for the record. Because Absolutely. It, it, it didn't seem to provoke much, but it was meant to be provocative. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> it, it, but it bears out your point exactly. And um, one of the reasons I really admire my colleagues on the committee is that there are many on this committee who have spent a lot of time uh, in Africa, and non-committee members, too, in the Senate who spent a lot of time on it, and hearings like this are really helpful. You know, just a, just a thought on this. I don't have to be diplomatic, because I'm not a diplomat. Um, on the question of the differential in attention. I mean, I think you got to acknowledge that race, I, we, we would have to look in the mirror and ask ourselves if race is part of the reason. Because um, if, if we look backward at our own history, often things get explained in retrospect and race is part of the reason. I mean, and we, we put Japanese Americans in internment camps, we didn't put German Americans in internment camps. What, what explained the difference? Uh, uh, German-Americans looked kind of more European like the powers that be than Japanese-Americans did. Uh, there's a school of thought that, that explains the differential action of the United States in the 90s in terms of intervening dramatically to stop genocide in the Balkans, but not intervening dramatically to stop genocide in Rwanda. And they kind of, well, why did we intervene one and not the other? And some of the answer to that isn't too pleasant. And um, so I, I think that Part of the reason to have a hearing like this, and part of the reason I applaud my colleagues who, who spend a lot of time in Africa, is we, we have to, as leaders, kind of a challenge. In, in some ways, it's kind of a media portrayal, too, that you know, uh, terrorist attacks in Cote d'Ivoire, Mali, Burkina Faso, Nigeria, Chad aren't worthy of the attention that the attacks in Brussels or Paris are. And even those in Ankara and Istanbul and the Sinai don't get as much attention. So all of these are important, and having a hearing like this tries to put it on a, an equal scale and not um, suggest that some lives are worth less than others. I think there, there are some other reasons. The Middle East, we've, we've needed something. We've needed oil. And so that has probably made us more focused on the Middle East, and we haven't focused as much on Africa because maybe we didn't perceive that we needed something as much. Um, but also, and again, this is a, a good reason to have a hearing like this, our foreign policy as a nation has just had an east-west axis that's been undeniable. We've cared about Europe, we've cared about the Middle East, we've cared about the Soviet Union, now Russia, we've cared about China. But if you look at the diplomatic effort that focuses south of the equator in Africa and the Americas, it's just been less. And so that's something that's good about a, a hearing like this. Um, I wanted to ask a, a question. I'm actually going to make you do homework for me because we're writing the defense authorizing bill this week, and I'm on armed services. And we're going to grapple with some issues, and especially some issues dealing with AFRICOM. AFRICOM is an interesting uh, regional command on the military side because probably more than any of the other COCOMs, it really integrates um, cross-disciplinary military, diplomatic, USAID, and trying to deal with challenges in Africa. And I'm just... Uh, as folks who aren't part of the DOD, um, talk to me about your perceptions of AFRICOM. The one proposal is to fold AFRICOM back in to UCOM and not have there be a specific AFRICOM. I'd be curious as to your thoughts on that. And second, talk to me about the efficacy, following up on Senator Markey's questions, less about the arms sales, but about the training and the exercises we do with African militaries. I know many of our US ambassadors ask through AFRICOM that we devote 
you know, Marine units and other units into Africa to do training on counterterrorism, counter poaching, counter human trafficking, to build capacity. Um, in your view, as professionals in this area, how successful are those training efforts that we do with African security forces? I'll start and then I'll turn to, to my colleagues. Um, I hope that AFRICOM is not folded back into UCOM because what AFRICOM has meant for us is that we have a military that is more focused on Africa and has over the years become more uh, understanding of, of Africa and they have become a great partner for us. Uh, and we uh, very much appreciate that partnership uh, with AFRICOM uh, and with the military. As a member of uh, the authorizers for uh, armed services, uh, that's a key area where we do have concerns. Uh, and those concerns are that as their authorizations are being considered, they're crossing some lines uh, into the areas of uh, diplomacy and development. Uh, and those are authorizations that we would like to, to keep uh, and where we feel we have better uh, skills, we have better skill sets to carry out uh, those responsibilities, particularly in the area of community development, uh, in areas of uh, working on governance. Um, some of those authorizations need to be guarded for the State Department and for uh, USAID, and we have raised concerns there. Uh, but in terms of our relationships uh, with AFRICOM, uh, I think they're better than at any time uh, when we were working uh, with, uh, with CENTCOM. Uh, I think we, we have areas of disagreement and we've been able to establish channels of communications between uh, General Rodriguez and myself where we've addressed those issues. Uh, and uh, we have, uh, I think, had some positive impact on, on the region. Uh, in all of their training that they do with African militaries, uh, they have human rights training modules in every single one of those uh, efforts that we have made. And I think they have paid uh, uh, dividends for us and uh, we have been able to use the relationships that the militaries develop with their military counterparts to get messages through to those militaries. And then in terms of uh, lethal uh, weapons, uh, we look very closely at what we are providing. And as I mentioned to Senator Markey, when the Nigerians asked for COBRAs last year, we did not think those were appropriate. We were concerned about how they would be used and the impact on communities those COBRAs would have, and we said no. We think the Super Tucanos are a better uh, piece of equipment. Uh, we can train them on how to use uh, this equipment effectively and not uh, have a negative impact on, uh, on, on communities and on, uh, on civilians. Uh, so we're working very, very closely with them to address those concerns to make sure that they don't uh, have uh, the negative impact. Great. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Coons, our ranking member on Africa. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Markey is the ranking member on Africa. I, I, That's sir. right. Uh, we couldn't work that out. I, I forgot that. So, uh, weren't as successful as we were last week on State Department authorization, but go ahead. Mr. Chairman uh, and the ranking member, I just want to thank you both uh, for convening this hearing and for your great engagement on this topic today. And 
uh, along with uh, Senator Markey and Senator Flake and Senator Isaacson. We've all enjoyed a chance to work uh, over many years together. Um, just two opening statistics. I do think um, you reminded all of us um, uh, that there are positives and negatives to the security situation in Africa. As, as some of you know, I host an annual Opportunity Africa conference in Delaware to try and emphasize the positives. Uh, Africa is a vast and complex continent of 54 countries, uh, the fastest growing continent in the world. The World Bank says seven out of 10 of the fastest growing economies in the world this decade are in Africa, but eight out of 10 of the largest United Nations peacekeeping operations are also in the continent. I think one of our challenges is to remain appropriately focused on uh, the difficulties of developing a sustained strategic framework for engaging uh, with extremism and violence on the continent while still recognizing the significant growth opportunities, positive opportunities, to reinforce uh, our values and to work together uh, with our many uh, allies and partners on the continent uh, moving forward. I also, just at the outset, want to thank uh, the countless dedicated uh, foreign service officers and civil servants at the State Department uh, and USAID who work so hard to promote our interests uh, in Africa, uh, as well as those uh, in DOD and law enforcement uh, who do so much in terms of training and outreach. On a recent trip with Senator Cardin, uh, took the time to meet with a number of FSOs, and it's always to me interesting to hear just how hard they work. I'm impressed with their determination uh, and drive while working under difficult, dangerous, and often remote uh, conditions. So let me just ask uh, this panel what lessons we've learned uh, from fighting terrorism in Africa. We've got in front of us, just broadly speaking, um, three case studies uh, in the Sahel. Uh, with a focus on Mali, uh, in uh, the Lake Chad region with a focus on Nigeria, and in the Horn uh, where the focus really is Somalia. And we have very different levels uh, of U.S. engagement, U.S. expenditure, um, U.S. policy responses uh, to the significant stability challenges presented by Somalia, which was literally a completely failed state, um, but where there is a multilateral uh, military presence where we've played a significant role, uh, and I think they've made uh, substantial success uh, in pushing back al-Shabaab in uh, the Lake Chad region, uh, where we are expending less in money, but uh, Boko Haram last year was literally the deadliest terrorist organization in the world, uh, and it should get and deserves uh, higher attention and higher priority, as Senator Kane suggested, uh, for some reasons that are really unappealing, I think. The United States, by the way, gets more oil from the continent of Africa than we do from the Middle East. Um, so if it was merely about resource prioritization, we long ago would have put Africa at the top of our list, uh, and I am concerned that we are allowing others uh, to become dominant players in Africa, and we are lagging. And then last, uh, in the Sahel, we've, we've really predominantly left uh, the hard work uh, to an AU mission, to the UN, and to the French. And these are very different responses, but in all three, um, there are no significant U.S. Uh, troop deployments. Uh, we may be central to the activity uh, in Somalia and in Nigeria, but uh, it's a quite different scenario uh, than we've seen uh, in Iraq uh, and uh, currently in Syria. So where are we getting the best bang for our buck? Where are we making the biggest progress in terms of advancing our values and our security concerns? And what role does diplomacy, development, security um, play in this work, if you would, just in series? What's the strategic framework for making progress? I'll start and then I'll, I'll turn to my colleagues. Uh, I think we, you, you asked early what lessons we, we have learned. And I think the most valuable lesson we've learned is that this has to be multifaceted. It cannot be just focused on uh, security and military. We have to bring in uh, the civilian agencies. And we also have learned that we can't own it. We have to build the capacity of uh, local uh, 
organizations, local military, local security services, local civil society, uh, we have to build their capacity to own it and we have to be so supportive of them. Uh, third, I think we've learned that we have to partner. So in the case of Mali, uh, we have been, or in Sahel, we have been extraordinarily proactive in the Sahel, but we, we're, we're not in the lead. Uh, we have been involved in the peace negotiations. Our military has been extraordinarily supportive of, of the French effort there. Uh, there are so many uh, problems across the continent we have to spread ourselves very thin, and we have to look for other partners. And in that case, we work very closely with our partners uh, in the UN as well as in the French government to make sure that we're having impact on, on uh, the situation in the, uh, in the Sahel. And then finally, I, and this has been said in the room by everyone, we have to be concerned about human rights. We have to ensure that these governments understand that human rights are important for us, and as I've said before, it's a core value, and they expect to hear from us on human rights issues. Uh, if we don't raise human rights, uh, I think every one of them would be in shock. So we generally start out uh, in that area uh, with, with all of these governments. And if I might interrupt before we, we continue, we had an exchange earlier about the prioritization of democracy and governance funding. Uh, where Ranking Member Cardin appropriately said, in, uh, Senator Shaheen and I are both appropriators uh, and uh, heard that loud and clear, and it is an issue that I have pressed in recent appropriations hearings of the State Foreign Ops Subcommittee. We are underfunding democracy and governance dramatically, and I appreciate your raising that, and that is something that I've made a priority in my appropriations request this year because, uh, frankly, we send the wrong message, and I appreciate Senator Markey raising uh, concerns about DRC and um, their shrinking space for elections. If we don't fund our values and our values centrally are around democracy and space for um, uh, opposition parties and for journalists, um, they draw conclusions. Please, if you would, Ms. Aitin. Uh, sure, and I know very quickly. Uh, what I'll say is that core lessons learned, partnership, 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 whether it's through other donors and other partners, but also bringing in the private sector um, there, as you mentioned before, Africa is also a continent of opportunities, and we have a diverse set of partners that are very interested in stability and stabilization. They can be the drivers that help us to fuel and fund these economic opportunities that we're talking about for young people, uh, for actually uh, making the case to host governments of why inclusion policies are important, and of making sure that they're working uh, with us to, to make sure that the international norms are seen as something that's not only an imposition from a Western government, but as something that should be a standard to which everybody should aspire to. Uh, so I think that we have a lot of opportunities uh, here uh, through partnering uh, with governments, private sector, but also local communities, making sure that we're touching people on the ground where they live and not just working with uh, institutions and capitals. I agree with you. Senator Isaacson raised pointedly the MCC. I was frankly pleased uh, that Tanzania, um, because of electoral irregularities uh, and failure to really effectively address uh, corruption, um, suffered uh, a really unwelcome setback for them. And this weekend, the World Economic Forum is in Kigali, uh, and a great opportunity for us to continue engagement. And the administration is sending Ambassador Froman um, and uh, Fred Hochberg of Exim Bank, among many others. If you would, might I have the time to have them conclude? Thank you, Mr. Sibro. Uh, well, I think in general, the, the lessons learned in, in each of these three uh, conflict areas, as you pointed out, is that 
we have in the African continent uh, partners who are willing to address the challenges from within the region. So they are committed to the solution. And that is something that is uh, maybe even unique globally in the way that terrorism issues are being addressed. So each of those three examples you provided uh, has the neighbors coordinating. It hasn't been easy. It takes uh, you know, a constant uh, diplomatic effort to, to coordinate and keep uh, the momentum uh, in each of these areas. But the solution you would want in Somalia is a solution that has developed in terms of the troop contributing countries to Amisom. It's an AU-led mission, uh, the region addressing its own problems. And uh, uh, of course, the, the, the bigger challenge there also is that these are governments also that are generally speaking, in many cases, weak and poor and uh, lack in capacity. And a sustained solution over time that addresses the radicalization and the root causes will require improved governance. So it's a long-term um, um, uh, effort here, but the buy-in and the commitment of the countries themselves to sol solving the, the problem is a virtue, in my view. Absolutely. I think the fight against terrorism across Africa is every bit as urgent and every bit as large in scale as it is in the Middle East. A key difference is we have allies who are putting their soldiers into the fight. African soldiers are fighting and dying against terrorism in Somalia, in Nigeria, in Mali, um, and we are providing critical support training uh, funding and resources, but uh, unlike other places in the world, we have significant numbers of willing allies who are sending their troops into the fight, and it's made a real difference, and we should be grateful for their partnership, and we're grateful, I'm grateful for your service and the chance to ask questions today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Very good. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, I wanted to follow up on some of the questions that Senator Markey asked regarding the interaction of security assistance and um, assistance provided by the State Department. In 2014, it was the first time that DOD funding for security assistance in Africa surpassed that provided by the State Department, and it comes through a lot of different places, but in particular, um, a rather opaque fund uh, that the Pentagon runs called Building Partner Capacity, which is about $10 billion globally, is increasing the source of DOD funds uh, to help promote foreign military sales and stand up military capacity. Uh, and so, um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, I wanted to ask you about um, to what extent the State Department and the Africa Bureau is read in to the decisions made at the Department of Defense to spend uh, building partner capacity dollars. Again, this is a huge amount of money globally, $10 billion, a lot of it is spent in Africa. Um, to the extent to which you are read in, the extent to which individual ambassadors have a say as to how that money is spent to make sure that it isn't counteracting the work that they're doing uh, on the ground. Um, uh, and you know your, your broader thoughts on this sort of long-term transition away from the majority of money in the, these countries being State Department money to Department of Defense money? Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, we work closely uh, with AFRICOM on any activities that they are involved in in Africa. We have an annual uh, strategy uh, review uh, meeting with them where our DCMs from across Africa and USAID uh, mission directors uh, are invited to uh, come to Stuttgart. I'm there. Uh, my colleague from USAID, Linda Edam, is there as well. 
and uh, we look across the board at what they are planning to do and look at what they're planning to do in the context of our mission uh, programs in, in terms of our own strategy. So we do work closely with them. Our ambassadors have veto power on any actions that they are taking, uh, any programs that they are doing. Uh, and in general, if there's any disagreement, General Rodriguez and I work those disagreements out uh, between ourselves. So we're very much in sync with them. Uh, we wish we had that $10 billion uh, to, to program on the continent of Africa, and we'd be doing some different things. Uh, they have the money, so we want to help them channel that money to places where it will make a difference on the continent as we work to fight uh, insecurity and terrorism uh, together. Uh, but $10 billion would be a huge contribution to democracy and governance. I describe my democracy and governance funding as scraping uh, the mayonnaise jar uh, to get just enough to do the job that uh, we have to do. How much do you, just tell me, how much do you have in democracy and governance? Let me get back to yeah. you with that figure. It's, it's, it's a moving uh, target. Yeah, so I, I would submit that it's probably well less than oh, yeah, what, it is. what the Department of Defense is spending in uh, the building partner capacity account, which by the way is not broken down on a country by country basis. So as members of the Foreign Relations Committee, all we know is that there's $10 billion spent at the Department of Defense. Um, I'm glad that you're optimistic as to the degree of coordination that's happening, but um, it, it's, you know, for members of the Appropriations uh, Committee, uh, it's probably a topic that should uh, get more attention. Um, let me ask uh, one uh, additional- with, with my colleague, uh, you'll yield for one yeah, second. Sure. I, I will give you some extra time. I think you're raising a very fundamental point. We have a couple members of our committee to serve in armed services. It's been a growing problem, and as we get to the NDA bill, there's another effort, as an ambassador already pointed out, there may be efforts made to even expand DOD's role in traditional State Department areas. So it's a matter that I think our committee needs to take a look at on a broader scale than just Africa. So. Yeah, and listen, there's obviously been a long-term shift of diplomacy away from the State Department to the Defense Department. That's what happens when you're engaged in very dangerous places. But um, I, I, I guess I am not as optimistic as the witnesses as to the ability to coordinate uh, this work on a country-by-country -country basis? It's, it's an effort. Uh, I actually have the figures here. Uh, we're actually going, looking at increasing that funding uh, in, the, uh, in the president's request, uh, increasing support for DNG uh, programs in Africa in FY17. The request for that sector is 20% above what we did in 2015. Our figure for 2015 was 286 a um, uh, million dollars, uh, and our figure for uh, our requests for uh, uh, 16, 311 uh, million dollars. So it's really uh, a drop in the bucket when you just, compare that to t 10 billion. And listen, it's, it's just another way by which we communicate our priorities to these countries. So when we are looking at $300 million on a good day in democracy assistance, and then we are handing out potentially 10 times that amount of money in an account that has very little oversight from the United States Congress. It tells these countries what we think is most important. Um, and it, as part of this balance, it's difficult to do when the numbers are that skewed in favor of military and security assistance. Um, to that, um, and I don't know exactly who to put this question to, but maybe Mr. Uh, Sabur, I'll ask it to you and to others. 
Um, in these three conflict zones that we're talking about, um, can you talk a, a, a little bit about this mystery, which is the attractiveness of a Wahhabi-oriented, Salafist, Sunni ideology amidst areas that are often dominated by Sufi Muslims. Um, and the story has to be partially about schools that are on the ground, funded by some of our allies in the Middle East. Some of it has to do with young men who go uh, to the Middle East to uh, get taught in schools, funded by our allies in the Middle East. Um, what is the level of seriousness about, uh, about the, the countries on the ground in understanding and trying to tackle this problem of radicalization that happens in these Wahhabi-funded or Salafist-oriented schools, either in theater or back in the Middle East? Uh, I think it's a real concern on the part of uh, many governments in the region, and we hear that from those governments. Um, as you pointed out, there are likely a variety or a number of different uh, vehicles through which these ideas or this ideology you know, penetrates a society. This is not something that is limited, unfortunately, to areas of Africa. We see it in Southeast Asia. We see it in other places where you've had historically kind of an um, animist approach or a more uh, kind of uh, an approach to religion and faith that is tolerant of other uh, traditions. And that is being kind of worn down by this uh, uh, Salafi uh, ideology. And then that causes polarization, that causes intolerance, it causes even sectarian conflict. And so it's a, it's a problem globally. It also relates probably to the spread of media. Uh, people have access to media for coming from different parts of the world. And there have been um, uh, media funded through, uh, uh, from coming out of certain regions that have um, propagated or, or, uh, or emphasized a particular view. Uh, so there are a number of different vehicles, and it's a major concern uh, in these countries. Um, I think, though, that when we talk about what it's, it, you have to look at the um, particular circumstances, almost at the, you know, the community and the village level sometimes, or what are those influences. And that's where the very difficult work of countering violent extremism will be will be identifying through research and through data and understanding of the drivers at a local level. It's a very hard uh, issue to address, but especially amidst uh, what is really a global phenomenon of, uh, of the infiltration of this particular religious view. I'll just, I'll just say in, in handing uh, back uh, uh, my time, we can spend money chasing um, these dollars around the world, but we are never going to be able to keep up. It's probably a better strategy for us to ask about why these dollars are moving into areas like Africa, um, out of the Middle East, out of the pockets of many of our friends, probably a better use of our time and money. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I want to thank our panelists, and uh, I think you can see there's a lot of interest um, in what we had to talk about today. Um, if you could, we'll... Uh, We'll have questions, I know, after this, if you could respond fairly quickly. We'll take questions until the close of business on Thursday, but we thank you for your service to our country, and if you could, with your crew, uh, we'd like to shift out now to another panel. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, sir.
you so much. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you. Our second panel uh, will consist of two witnesses. The first witness is Mr. Abdullier Mardier. Any corrections needed there, sir? Okay, thank you. Assistant Administrator and Director for the UN Development Program Regional Bureau for Africa. Our second witness will be Mr. Christopher Formunia, Senior Associate and Regional Director for Central and Senior Associate and Regional Director for Central and West Africa at the National Democratic, Democratic Institute. We will recognize Mr. Dia first with his opening comments, and if you would follow, we thank you both for sharing your expertise and knowledge with us today. Go ahead, sir. I'm very honored as director of the Regional Bureau for Africa of the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, to be invited as panelists before the US Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. This is my very first appearance. I have submitted a longer uh, text, so I'll try to limit my uh, uh, liminary remarks within five minutes. My purpose today will be twofold. First, I want to briefly update you on what we as UNDP have learned about instability in Africa. And second, I will share our view on the possible developmental approach to mitigate the threats to peace and stability in what is often referred to as Africa's arc of instability, which encompasses the Sahel, the Lake, Chad region, and the Horn of Africa. But let me, before I start, put a sense of perspective. Even though we are discussing instability in Africa, and one senator said it, uh, the continent is doing extremely great. For the last 15 years, it has grown uh, GDP-wise 5% per year uh, uh, since 2000. Violent extremism is amongst the major risks to economies in part of Africa. Tunisia's GDP growth has been cut from 3% to 1%. Chad's GDP contracted 1% in 2015 from a growth of 5% in 2014. And countries like Kenya and Nigeria saw a reduction of 25% of tourism following terrorist attacks. We in UNDP estimate that at least 33,000 people have died on African soils since 2011 as victims of violent extremism. And six million are currently internally displaced due to radicalization. Mr. Chairman, over the last two years, UNDP has held a number of consultations, conducted a series of studies and commissioned research to better understand the violent extremism scourge in Africa. These various studies and research converge in showing three major findings. One, while the drivers of radicalization are multifaceted and defy easy analysis, their major roots are to be found in the combination of poverty and low human development, endemic sense of economic and political exclusion and marginalization, and weak social contracts with high level of societal divisions among ethnic or religious lines. Two, the most fertile grounds for radicalization are the border areas, which are, in most of the countries, neglected, ungoverned, weak governance, 
and in terms of socioeconomic and, 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 and low socioeconomic and institutional infrastructure. Three, while there are a number of commonalities which drives radicalization, there are also some important differences between countries. For example, socioeconomic factors tend to be the prominent drivers in the Sahel, the Lake Chad, the, uh, the Lake Chad Basin, Somalia, and Nigeria, whereas political grievances are much are a much more prominent factor in Kenya. It is with these features and analysis in mind that UNDP embarked on a development-led approach which seeks to address the multiple drivers and enablers of radicalization and violent extremism. We have launched a four-year regional initiative on preventing and responding to violent extremism in Africa, which focuses on supporting regional institutions, governments, communities and at-risk individuals to address the drivers and related factors. We are working in epicenter countries, in spillover countries, and in at-risk countries, supporting partners to develop and implement integrated regional and national policies and strategies, rule of law, community and faith-based intervention to prevent youth radicalization and de-escalate local conflicts. We also promote social cohesion at the community level, working with local and national governments to, pro to provide basic social services to citizens. We support employment creation, and we work with local governments to strengthen public administration and the extension of state authority. We have learned that well-resourced, comprehensive, and integrated programs combining security and development response offer the best approaches to combating violent extremism. Let me conclude uh, my remarks by emphasizing that for Africa to meet its full development potential, preventing and responding to violent extremism is a key. This will require coordinated and collaborative partnership between governments, development partners, and civil groups. I thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Famunya. Is that correct pronouncement? Yes, it's correct, Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, on behalf of the National Democratic Institute, NDI, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss terrorism and instability and make the case for why democracy and good governance should be a central component of any counterterrorism and stabilization strategy in Sub-Saharan Africa. For more than 30 years, NDI has worked around the world to establish and strengthen political and civic organizations, safeguard elections, and promote citizen participation, openness, and accountability in government. The Institute has conducted programs in or worked with participants from approximately 50 of Africa's 54 countries, and I have been fortunate to be part of our efforts in many of those countries for the past two decades. Terrorist activity in sub-Saharan Africa over the past decade threatens to destabilize the continent and roll back some of the gains in broadening political space and participation since the third wave of democratization that began in the 1990s. Groups such as Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria and the Lake Chad Basin, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in, north, in northern Mali and the Sahel, and Al-Shabaab in Somalia and the Horn of Africa have caused tens of thousands of deaths 
and tremendous economic and social dislocations for civilian populations. Some of these extremist organizations operating in Africa are eager to establish alliances with violent extremist organizations in other parts of the world, notably Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria ISIS. The international community is right in supporting counterterrorism efforts that seek to defeat these extremist groups militarily and must, at the same time, assist the affected countries to address the root causes and triggers of the rise in extremism and violence. The principal motivation of today's terrorists in sub-Saharan Africa is deeply rooted in a pattern of religious beliefs. However, it is noteworthy that governance failures have exacerbated the impact of this phenomenon and created an enabling environment in which extremism thrives. When a state collapses, as was the case with Somalia prior to the emergence of Al-Shabaab, or allows for huge swaths of ungovernable spaces, as was the case in Northern Mali, or fails to fulfill its basic purpose of providing citizens with access to a meaningful life, liberty, and property, as in Northeastern Nigeria, the social contract between the state and the citizenry is broken. Discontent with governments that are viewed as illegitimate or ineffective is a fertile ground for recruitment as disaffected individuals may easily embrace extremism, hoping to access a better life, political power of voice, and the resources linked to these attributes in transition environments. Moreover, oppressed citizens and marginalized groups that are denied access to basic public goods and services and opportunities are more vulnerable to extremist appeals and indoctrination by non-state actors who in return promise to fulfill their needs. Efforts to counter violent extremism and terrorism in sub-Saharan Africa must therefore address poor governance as a part of the overall strategy. Based on institutional lessons learned through NDI's work my own experience and expertise as an African, and what I hear loud and clear from African Democrats, leaders and activists alike across the continent, I would strongly offer the following three recommendations for your consideration. Any counter-terrorism strategy for Africa should be grounded in the consolidation of democracy and good governance, such that short-term military victories can be sustained in the medium to long term. We cannot afford to defeat violent extremism now only to take up the same fight five, 10 years down the road. Two, autocratic regimes should not get a pass from the international community solely because they are good partners in the fight against terrorism. Shrinking political space, frequent and overt violations of citizen rights and freedoms and the undermining of constitutional rule and meaningful elections breed discontent and disaffection that form the fertile ground for recruiters and perpetrators of violence and extremism. Good partners in countering violent extremism and terrorism can and should be good performers in democratic governance. 
these two principles are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are mutually reinforcing. Africans of this generation are jittery and extremely fearful of relieving the experience of the Cold War era, during which dictatorships thrived amidst grave human deprivation and gross human rights abuses, just because some leaders were allies of the West at the time. The fight against terrorism should not become a substitute for the Cold War paradigm of this century with regards to Sub-Saharan Africa. Democratic governance is critical to every counterterrorism strategy before, so citizen grievances are not allowed to fester and breed extremism, dissatisfaction, and alienation from the state, during to deprive extremists of possible recruitment grounds, and after to sustain the peace that would have been gained militarily for the medium to long term. Excessive deprivation in both economic terms and in access to political voice, freedoms, and civil liberties make young people vulnerable to the recruitment incentives of extremist movements. To conclude, let me say that despite the enthusiasm of a few years ago and some remarkable accomplishments in the last two decades, democracy and democratic governance in Africa is under attack. On the one hand, it is challenged by external threats from extremist terrorist organizations, and on the other hand, in some cases, by internal threats from autocratic regimes that fail to deliver public services, combat corruption, and protect rights and freedoms. The international community should do everything in its power to help rid the continent of both existential threats. Friends of Africa must make sure that they do not willingly or inadvertently allow themselves to become accomplices in denying Africans their basic rights and freedoms and a secure, prosperous future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee for this opportunity. This is a brief summary of my statement, and a longer statement will be submitted for the record. Without objection, it will be entered into the record. We thank you both for your testimony, and I will turn to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Card. Well, I, I want to thank both of you for your oral presentations as well as your full statements that are being made part of our record. I've had a chance to look through it. And it certainly reinforces the concerns that I've had. So I want to get a little bit more granular here. Both of you mentioned the importance of the underlying causes of radicalization. And although we have to deal with the immediate issues, if we don't deal with the underlying causes, it'll be short-term success. We have incredible tools. UNDP is an incredibly important part of our international efforts to help develop the prosperity in countries that we hoped would provide the long-term stability necessary. NDI's done incredible service in developing democratic opportunities around the globe. And of course, the United States and our development assistance and our security assistance, uh, these are tools that can provide incredible opportunities for stability globally. And yet, we point out that in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, we have not been as successful as we need to be. So therefore, my question to both of you, what has worked that we should build on? I mean, I, I, need your, I see your specific recommendations. I, I understand. 
incorporate good governance, deal with education, deal with the underlying economic issues. But how do you take the current programs that are available, either through the United Nations or through private organizations or through government, how do you take those programs and build on the ones that are the most relevant to the stability of sub-Saharan Africa and what programs need to be reconfigured because they're not providing the returns uh, for the investments that are being made? Can we be a little more specific here? Thank you, Senator. Let me first uh, state that uh, when I was listening to the previous panel, what you said uh, was music to my hear ears, and you said that it boils down to good governance. Uh, this is the fight that we are doing, in, first in Africa, but in UNDP. Uh, the major portfolio of UNDP is good governance. And in, in this country, we have seen that poor governance and ungoverned spaces has been the, the major root causes of not only underdevelopment, but the insecurity that we are see, seeing in the continent. And you are right, we have good practices. Uh, the, issue, the issue that we are uh, uh, seeing here is that uh, most of these countries have very limited fiscal space and hence cannot deliver to scale the good practice that we are doing. I think the solution is, number one, uh, not only limit ourselves to uh, military solution, but blend them military and uh, human rights and then um, uh, development. But the good practices that we are having, put them to scale. Uh, to do so, I think we, the international community, have to understand that the issue of terrorism is a global public bad, and this country, this limited sp fiscal space, cannot do it alone. And uh, in, a, in, a, in a spirit of partnership, we can scale up the good practices. I'm just coming from uh, Kenya and Ethiopia, where I saw an excellent partnership between the two countries uh, in the Marzabit region, uh, where they are doing cross-border initiatives. Uh, we haven't discussed it a lot in, uh, during the first panel. Uh, it's at the border. Uh, that we see problems. So if we invest in creating resilience for communities at the border, border areas, we could have done great. And I think if we, with good funding, we can scale, scale up those uh, excellent initiatives. Senator, the uh, National Democratic Institute um, obviously doesn't have the luxury of a governmental entities such as USAID or the Department of State or even a multinational organizations such as UNDP, uh, but with the resources that uh, we've always received uh, graciously from some of these agencies, we've tried to put a lot of emphasis on developing civil society. Uh, because when you look at the, the statistics or the studies done by organizations such as Afrobarometer, uh, and I referenced that in my, in my written statement, 75% uh, of Africans aspire to live in democratic societies, believe in democracy. And so the demand for democracy and good governance continues to rise on the continent. Unfortunately, the supply is shrinking. And so programs that can allow the expansion of political space uh, would bring more citizens into the process. It would also allow these citizens to advocate for the proper management of resources that are channeled to governments or that are created within this, um, uh, these countries. And so I would put a lot more emphasis on strengthening civil society, uh, strengthening citizen-based organizations, uh, because some of them are very active, especially even in rural, including in rural areas, in some of the areas that have been impacted by these grievances. Uh, I understand that in northeastern Nigeria, for example, there are a number of uh, groups that are engaging with um, internally displaced persons. 
that are engaging with some of the people that are dealing with trauma and some of the impact of Boko Haram. And organizations such as those sometimes have received support from NDI and other organizations in helping build their capacity uh, to be effective uh, advocates on behalf of citizens. I, I, I agree with both the points you made. I think border issues are, uh, it's, a, it's a good point, and we, we need to concentrate. So they're more complicated because the problems can go across borders, and therefore the country, the host, you know, we're not sure what host country is responsible unless you have partnerships between the two countries. Uh, it makes it complicated and difficult. And I, I certainly agree with you on civil society. I think civil society is a critical factor in good governance. And if you don't have a healthy civil society, uh, it breeds the, the problems. Let me try to get to a third point that your review, your view on that. And that is the reality or perception that you can get a free pass from the United Nations or from the United States uh, if you are uh, working with the international coalition to fight counterterrorism, uh, and that what you do internal in your country will not really be a major importance uh, to the international participation and support. Uh, that, to me, whether it's real or perceived, can be a huge problem in dealing with civil society or dealing with good governance or dealing with democratic institution development. Just share with me your concern as to whether the leaders of countries that are working with us have the view that the international community will give them a free pass on governance issues as long as they are part of our coalition against uh, violent extremism. Thank you, Senator. Uh, for us, um, human rights is the bedrock of whatever we do, and it's not uh, negotiable. And I was so you're willing to pull out of a country if you can't get the cooperation you need from their leaders? Uh, what we do is we support capacity building. We I have understand that, but are you willing to pull out of a country? If you said it's the bedrock, if it's yeah. the most important point, if you have a corrupt regime and you're doing some good work in that country, but at least part of that's going to support a corrupt regime, are you prepared to pull out? Uh, when you pull out, there's a cost to the community you serve. So what we do is we make strong declaration, the Secretary General and the High Commissioner of Human Rights make this kind of strong de uh, declarations. But I think we as the UN uh, could be better off uh, to support capacities and support communities and help countries deal with human rights. And this is um, a voice that we have to put strongly. But whatever we do, human rights is embedded on our programs. So it's a culture that you have to infuse into societies and into government. It takes time. It may not happen overnight, but it is embedded in all, all what we do. Mm -hmm. Senator, I would say that the, the perception is uh, real um, and that you hear it as you travel across the continent, um, even with partner organizations uh, within civil society, <laughs> that uh, when you go through the list of countries that have become poor performers, uh, some that were initially on a positive trajectory, but that have uh, been backsliding, uh, that those countries coincidentally happen to be partners in uh, the fight against uh, terrorism. Uh, and it's a, a perception that that then undermines all of the declarations and all of the work that has been done to support civil society in the past. Uh, the example that you raised earlier about Ethiopia is very clear. It's, it's obvious that Ethiopia has been backsliding on the democratic governance front, uh, but it's still viewed as a good ally. And what many civic leaders then pose is the question of whether these regimes um, are getting a pass solely because of their cooperation on that front, whereas this 
two um, undertakings are really mutually reinforcing. Um, and you could be a good partner on the counterterrorism front and still be a good performer on the democratic governance front. Well, I agree. I, I, it's not a, a choice of either or. It's got to be both. I mean, I, there's no question. Because otherwise, again, you get short-term gains, but long-term, you're not going to succeed Absolutely. with the type of stability that will provide not only an opportunity for its citizens, but also eliminate the gap that is used for recruitment of extremists. So um, you've got to do both. And I'm afraid that we have focused on the counterterrorism from a military point of view with partners at times to the exclusion of dealing with the development of good governance in a country. In a country. And it seems like this hearing has only um, put a spotlight on that. So hopefully we can figure out. And, and just in response to the UN, you've got to be prepared to walk away if you don't have a partner that is providing a fair opportunity to the people of their country. And uh, it's sometimes difficult because you know that there are needs out there that you have to deal with. But if it's not getting through uh, and if it's supporting corruption, uh, then the better alternative is to look for another new opportunity rather than continuing the existing partnership. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, now, what he just said, though, is unlikely to ever occur, is it not? I mean, let's just be honest with you, Chad. You want me to answer that? I, the, think, the, you, I think you answered with your laugh, but, <laughs> but I, the, it's not going to occur, is it? But, but there's a way of um, optimum, a suboptimum way of doing it is um, uh, not to walk away from a country, but uh, uh, go to the communities and invest in the communities. Yeah. But as, as the, we said, it is the rebuilding the social contract, yeah. uh, empowering the communities for them also to fight for human rights. So that's the investment I think worth doing. And just to underscore the point, I, look, we always look for a way of providing humanitarian help. We always look for a way to deal with the human crisis that exists. But if the host country believes that they're always going to have a partner, regardless of their own activities, you lose the ability to change the underlying problems within that country. And we talked, you know, the first panel was here, and, and we went down this same line of discussion. Uh, I, there's no question, is there, that the fact that citizens understand that we're going to hang because the terrorism issue is acute the other issues are longer term. They know that we're going to hang in there with them on the counterterrorism piece. There's no question, as they see malfeasance relative to governance and other issues, that that creates ill will towards the United States, is there? That's a question. Um, obviously, it, it creates a lot of doubts in the minds of the people. Uh, and we're also dealing with uh, a segment of the population that's uh, only going to increase. It's the young people, it's the activists, it's the journalists, it's, um, and we know that Africa is a young continent. So the, the bulk of the population is in this category of people who aspire to be governed differently, who aspire to democracy, and who love and respect the United States for these values. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones being put in a position of askance uh, when government enact anti-terrorism uh, anti legislation that is then used to shrink political space and silent voices. And so we end up not creating friends with the segment of the population that is the continent of the future. Yeah. And, and, and that spurs, by the way, a magnet for 
folks to be attracted more so to terrorism, right? I mean, so it just feeds on each other. So let me, let me, let's just step back. We, we all understand there's a presidential race underway. And, and we understand, those of us here understand that we spend 1% of our U.S. budget on foreign aid, 1%. But there's no question that during the, the presidential race, there'll be discussions about foreign aid. I mean, I don't think that's, it's possible for that not to occur. And so, you know, people listening to this testimony today, listening to the fact that we're, we're on one hand dealing with corrupt leaders that are not treating their populations properly, sending them money that in many ways keeps them in power, and if they partner with us on counterterrorism, even more so. Uh, on the other hand, we have people that, we have terrorism, we have you know, people that are being treated unfairly, and we actually have one of our committee members here that constantly is focused on this issue. So just stepping back, and as we debate our nation's fiscal issues and our nation's interest, which I think maybe more so in this presidential year may be discussed than in times in the past, um, if you would, both of you advocate to me why you believe that our continued involvements uh, in countries like the ones we're discussing is an important thing for the United States to be doing? Well, Mr. Mrs. Uh, Ch Chairman, um, simply put, uh, as I said earlier, um, uh, although terrorism um, uh, could be uh, generated by um, um, poor governance uh, in a country, uh, it is a global public good or global public bad. It belongs to all international community. That's why it behooves us as international community to fight them wherever, wherever they are. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, we should give a free pass, um, but we have to fight it and, and, and fight also the root causes. Uh, that's why um, foreign aid is still critical, catalytic, and important in this fight. Mr. Chairman, I agree with uh, what my co-panelists just said. And I will simply add that um, in many of these countries, uh, American lives, American interests are also at stake. Uh, we may remember the initial bombings of embassies in Kenya and in Tanzania, uh, that the terrorists did target American institutions, embassies, and a lot of Americans died in that process. And so terrorists are a threat to Americans, whether they're on the homeland or trying to operate overseas, because ult their ultimate goal is probably larger targets than the villages that get destroyed in a number of African countries. And so I think it's important to send forth the message that is teaching time is worth nine, and that we all threatened uh, by this phenomenon, irrespective of where it finds itself at the present moment. But I think, I think that the challenge, um, you know, we, you know, I think some of the debate around, let's go to the Middle East, uh, ISIS, and, you know, people act as if we're, you know, going to do away with ISIS in the next year or two, uh, are missing the fact that the root causes are, are, are a long, long-term, a long, long-term uh, issue. Same is true in Africa. Uh, the root causes there are a long-term issue. And I think as Americans look at um, the resources that we have and the needs within our own country, uh, sometimes the simple thought that we can deal with terrorism like that 
Um, and, and maybe the lack of understanding that there are root causes within Africa, within the Middle East, that are going to mean that if this group is gone, another group's going to be coming right behind it unless we're dealing with both sides of the equation. I think uh, people, uh, in many cases, miss that point because of the dialogue that's taking place. Would you all agree or disagree with that? Absolutely, uh, Mr. Chairman. It's not, uh, it's not instant coffee dealing with this, uh, the root causes of terrorism. It has started uh, years ago. It, it will take some years, some more years to deal with. Um, and, 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 and as we said earlier, it's the, uh, the toxic combination of uh, uh, poor, go poor governance, uh, low human development, and uh, weak social contract that has created this. And uh, this will take time to deal with. Uh, it's a long-term investment. Uh, and again, if we combine and if we put scale into that long-term investment and combine it with good security, and security has to be still there, I think we will win over, over time. But it will take time. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's not an uh, instant co coffee bottle, mm -hmm. in my view. I, I agree with you, Mr. Chairman. And um, I think that um, the message can also be conveyed that uh, first you have to stop the bleeding and then you can use uh, democracy and good governance to build up a lot of these societies and a lot of these countries. And uh, the example that I've uh, used in the past with regards to the Sahel, for example, is the difference that democracy and good governance made in the situation of two countries that were both bordering countries to Libya, but that dealt with the post-Libya crisis in a very different fashion. Mali was being poorly governed. The government was accused of being very corrupt, of maltreating minorities, the Tuareg minorities in northern Mali, marginalizing them and causing a lot of grievances. It wasn't able to control its borders, and there was a lot of illicit activities already taking place in northern Mali prior to the attacks by the, um, by the, terrorist, the terrorist attacks that really peaked in 2012. On the other hand, Niger Republic, which is a neighboring country to Mali, and which even shares a direct border with Libya, because the government had better control of its borders, because the government had come up with a policy to integrate the Tuaregs of Niger into its governance processes, because the government of Niger was dealing with decentralization and allowing people at the grassroots level to make decisions that impact their lives directly, Niger was better able to deal with the after effect of the Libyan crisis than Mali. Until to, till today, Niger is not a very wealthy country, but it's surviving in a neighborhood that's invested by terrorists to its northern border with Libya, to its northeastern border with northern Mali, and to its southern border with northeastern Nigeria and Niger is to be commended for its effort. This is one example where an African country that is not necessarily resource-endowed mm -hmm. is better able to manage its economic resources and its human capital in a way that gives people confidence that the government re can respond to citizen needs and grievances, and the country is still doing well today. Well, thank you. We're, we're uh, way beyond time. If I could just ask one last question. We had a, this is a little bit off topic, but we had a, really uh, sort of harrowing hearing, if you will, about UN peacekeepers. 
and the abuses uh, that are taking place. And I'd just like to ask in closing, um, when this is happening, uh, what does that also do relative to populations and their feelings about, uh, uh, you know, people who are working with them to keep peace, but also how does that fuel, if, if it does, how does that fuel additional attraction to terrorist groups? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a horrible situation. It, 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 it's not a wide-scale um, phenomenon, but horrible. Uh, whenever it happens, it uh, uh, put a discredit of the, on the good work that uh, other soldiers are doing and the UN at large, and you have seen uh, the Secretary General condemning it uh, strongly. He condemns uh, it, but it still it, happens, and we see almost no action taken against he has, he has So condemning it doesn't mean anything to he me. Has, he yeah. has condemned it when it happened lately in Central Africa. He has uh, dismissed uh, the head of the mission. He has named uh, the countries uh, where the soldiers, or the perpetrators are coming. I think it behooves those who's countries gone to, jail? To, to prosecute who, the soldiers. Who's gone to jail? And, and, and I think the, uh, once the Secretary General has named uh, those countries that, uh, whose soldiers has done it, um, uh, it behooves the countries to persecute. Yeah, you understand from my perspective, that'd be like us naming the terrorists as bad guys but doing nothing about it. But I think you that, uh, uh, and the Secretary General has also uh, nominated lately a special coordinator, Dan yeah. Lute from, uh, from the U.S., uh, to coordinate the efforts of the U.N. to address this uh, despicable, and I, I underline, uh, acts uh, that should have happened. Prosecution, prosecutions are what will end it, not naming people, not naming countries, not prosecutions. But, but Mr. Chair, you would know that um, um, the UN um, has no space for prosecuting uh, soldiers given by contributing countries. Uh, that's why I say it behooves those countries to do the prosecution once they are named. Yeah. If, if I might, I, I want to just join with the chairman. I, I'm not satisfied that the United Nations has done everything it needs to do. I understand you don't have independent uh, ability to do that. I understand you have the politics of dealing with all your member states. But with the peacekeepers, it was very, very late at the game, and the action was not adequate. Uh, and uh, we know that the Secretary General is very sincere. And we know that the Security Council has, has taken action, uh, but we uh, have not seen the type of enforcement that we expect. And I, I think the same thing is true with the various programs under the United Nations. That is, the development programs are critically important. But if you're not prepared to break your partnership with a corrupt regime, then I think you are doing a disservice. I understand the humanitarian needs. I understand dealing with, with particularly uh, NGO types where we can do direct uh, humanitarian service. But contracts with governments that are corrupt need to be um, um, prepared to walk away if we cannot get the type of progress. We don't expect progress overnight. So if I can, Mr. Chairman, if your patience, just one quick question to, 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 to Mr. Famunya, and that is, how would you, what would you like to see the United States do in order to respond to the perception that we give free passes to coalition partners in regards to their human rights violations? Is there something specific you would like to see us do? Um, 
Senator, I think you touched on, on some of those issues in the first panel. Um, I think uh, speaking out uh, more publicly against some of these violations, but also taking actions that can assure or reassure uh, the vast majority of um, Africans in these countries uh, that when the United States says that democracy is one of its um, core pillars of its Africa policy, that it really means it. Uh, so that there isn't a sense of leaders acting with impunity, even at the highest level, because then it undermines everything else. I would also uh, mention what you discussed in terms of uh, resources, additional resources uh, for democracy and uh, good governance programs or democracy support programs. And also a sense that these programs, um, to be effective, because you're talking about changing attitudes and changing behaviors and impacting um, I mean, dealing with people who've acted one way for, uh, for decades and who now need to act differently, um, that a sustained level of support is more likely to pay dividends than short-term surgical-type interventions uh, because you need time to be able to create relationships uh, of trust. You need time for people to entrust that your technical assistance uh, is nonpartisan. Uh, and means well in terms of raising the well-being of citizens and putting in place systems and processes that can endure beyond one government or one, one leader. Uh, and that requires time and sustained resources. I think that would go a long way uh, because fortunately for the three decades that NDI and the International Republican Institute and IFS and other organizations have been doing this line of work, we've established the relationships in these countries that could have a huge impact if the resources were available. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, no, thank you, and thank you, uh, Mr. DA. I know this is uh, you were speaking up regarding the UN. It was not your area of expertise nor purview. I appreciate, uh, but I, I think you can understand where none of us at the panel are, are particularly uh, thrilled with the way the UN has handled the peacekeeping issues and prosecuted calls prosecutions to take place. Let me just close with this. I, I think you know. Look, this certainly this hearing has given us a good sense of the complexities that exist. We have similar complexities in the Middle East where we're dealing with countries that, you know, uh, uh, leave these vacuums, um, discriminate against uh, various sects that are, not, that are not of their own. And so this is a challenge we have uh, throughout the world when we're dealing with, with issues like this. But we thank you for your focus today on Africa. Um, as you mentioned, as you heard me mention in the last panel, if you would, there'll be some questions from members in writing. Uh, we'll close that as of Thursday afternoon. If you could respond fairly briefly, we'd appreciate it. We thank you both for your expertise and knowledge and your willingness to share it with us today. And with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.